Jack Stein, Spike O'Neill, or should I call him Bruce Springsteen's biggest anti-fan? <laughs> right. um, maybe Mr. Hey, MAGA? Should uh, I call you Mr. Yeah, MAGA, maybe? That's, that's my favorite. <laughs> I'm getting that tattoo on my lower back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Spike, uh, we got a lot to get to today. I uh, got a pharmacy in Tacoma that broke some rules, some very, very important rules, and they're paying a settlement out for that. But before we get to that, today is a is an interesting anniversary. I hate to use the term anniversary because it's such a it's kind of a dark day. Um, but 22 years ago, there was a pretty substantial earthquake, and uh, some are saying that Seattle is still not ready for the big one. What are the details on this, Spike? So it was February 28th of 2001, and 11 o'clock in the morning, and it was the only earthquake I've ever lived through. Really? I mean, ever. Wow. I, and I've, I felt little shimmies and shakes from time to time. As When you live on the fault line like we do here in Seattle, there's a major fault below the Seattle waterfront. This thing, literally, it, the kind of thing that has your entire house rolling, like two, three feet up and down, up and down for a sustained uh, portion of time. It was like a 6.8 quake. It was the Nisqually quake, of course. Um, and it was uh, centered right below Nis- the Nisqually Valley, I think it is, uh, down south of Olympia or near the Olympia, Seattle, you know, Olympia area. This thing was felt from Idaho to Vancouver to Oregon. It was so, so, um, and so deep. 11 miles deep. So it was a deep, deep, powerful earthquake, 6.8. And, you know, there was so much damage in Seattle that day, but it, it was all cosmetic damage. Yeah. It was the warning, you know, a shot across the bow, the proverbial shot across the bow that Seattle um, is is due for the for the big one. And Yeah, but that was – can you say that you're due for the big one when I – mean, it's like 22 years ago, right? I mean, you yeah. can't, <laughs> well, you can't well, say like well, well, there, next there one's going to be even bigger, right? Well, there are people who believe that there's a volcano, active volcano under Yellowstone, and when that blows up, the entire Western Hemisphere is going to be under ash and soot and we'll go to nuclear winter. But, you know, I don't want to <laughs> ruin everybody's day. It's a happy Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon here in Seattle. Right, right. Uh, you know, I know you spend a lot of time in California. Yep. So yeah. the things here that just – rock us to our core, no pun intended, and and literally make everybody in Seattle, I mean, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing for us. Have you been through a similar event or, or numerous? So many. Sim- really? So many. Yeah. When I lived in California, I mean, being from California, they're so regional that I, you know, you'll get text messages from people who live 45 minutes away from you and they'll, they'll go, did you feel the did earthquake? You? Yeah. Wow. And then you go, no. <laughs> so like, I've missed... I have missed earthquakes that I, I was supposed to have experienced them, right? But I was at my computer, and then I thought there was something going on. But it could be my laundry machine, or it could be sure, my neighbors. Yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah <laughs> right? no, I hear you. So, it to me, it's like you know, earthquakes are are kind of not that big of a deal. But that's because I lived in California for so many years. So everything in California is retrofitted and built to a right. certain specification. But in, in the fine city of Seattle, it looks like there's like a thousand some odd buildings that are not up to specification in case there is a, an earthquake. Well, I'll tell you my particular story about the earthquake retrofitting and seismic retrofitting. We bought our first home, my wife and I, an old house up on Queen Anne Hill in Seattle back when you know a, a married couple could afford a, yeah. a house up on Queen Anne Hill in Seattle. Yeah. And my father-in-law was very handy guy, Boeing guy, helped us refinish our basement, right? We had this whole, this house was built in 1907 and we bought it in like 92, 93, I want to say. 
And so we, we, you know, redid the basement, bit a nice a mother-in-law apartment down there for whomever came to visit my family from the East Coast, my, my wife's family from the Southwest. And while we, when we did so, we took off all the old Latin plaster, you know, those shiplap wood that was on the walls. And the house wasn't secured to the foundation. It was just sitting on wow. the foundation. Wow. And, and, and that, <laughs> no. that was, there was no code back right. when this house was built in 07. And so my father-in-law was smart enough to strap it down and literally seismically reinforce the house. And I just worry what would have happened to that home given the, you know, eight years later, six years, seven years later, when this thing was just rocking two, three feet up and down, up and down, up and down. Yeah. I mean, I mean if that thing had lost moved, the whole thing. Yeah. Could, yeah. If it had moved a couple inches in either direction, Spike O'Neill would have been without a house in the yeah, 90s. Slipping so. off the foundation, yeah. crashing into my neighbor's house, yada, yada. But there are literally over 1,100 buildings in Seattle that they have not addressed the need for retrofitting. So Yeah, so a lot of people came down on AOC and Bernie Sanders when they were talking about the Green New Deal, myself included. I was one of those people but because it was a ridiculous piece of legislation and it was basically like echo fascism. It was like green fascism well, where it, everything was going to be regulated. You have to eat – that's eating the whale in one bite. You can't do that. You eat a, ba- you eat a whale one bite at a time. Right. But that bill one, tried to make the, the moon launch of green energy in one yeah. shot. But one of the things that I did agree with in that bill, and had they kind of pieced it out, I would have been on more, more on board with it. But the idea of federal funding for buildings that needed to be reinforced in earthquake-prone areas, I thought that that was totally appropriate. Given that the United States has such terrible infrastructure problems, I thought that that was pretty based. But unfortunately, they, they shoehorned that in with – you know, paying uh, uh, guys to install fluorescent light bulbs at one hundred and thirty-five dollars an hour. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. Any time the was, government gets involved in your job, yeah, it was ridiculous. Then they just started putting stuff in there, and I just thought to myself, I can't sign off on this. This is insanity. So, anyway, Spike, uh, what what do you think we should do with these eleven hundred some odd buildings that are still technically prone to failure or collapse potentially if there's an earthquake? Well, there is a old uh, there's an old TV ad about I think it was about mechanics or like an oil, an oil change, like pay me now or pay me later. Yeah. It is much more economically feasible to do this work now because if you don't, those buildings come down. And it's a lot cheaper to fix these buildings and strap these buildings for ret- for seismic retrofitting than like they did with, with the viaduct when they fixed it before they dropped it. That was a great move. Or the West <laughs> Seattle Bridge where you when, – when you have time and the wherewithal and the, and the knowledge that you need to do this or disastrous results, not just financially dis- disastrous results, from a human perspective, 1,100 buildings in Seattle, we get a major earthquake in Seattle, a lot of people are going to suffer and not be lost. I mean, if, if you need any examples, look to Turkey and Syria. How many yeah. of those buildings either came down or are ready to be knocked over? They're not fit to live in anymore. That that entire nation has to be basically rebuilt because they didn't. They took great pride in not addressing buildings code safeties. Have we got that um, that Dave audio Ross? cut of Diamond Dave Ross doing his, uh, his splits midair on it? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it is it is worth returning to. Yes, yes we do. Yeah. This is in the seven ten Cairo days. Here's Dave Ross. Oh, hi, Dave. Um, what do we have in here? We have an earthquake? We're, oh. we're feeling some severe shaking here in the studio. We, uh, we are shaking like crazy here. We are having an earthquake, I oh. believe. Yeah, we are. Hang on. The lamps are shaking here. We are rocking and rolling, ladies and gentlemen. Phone poles are okay. I'm looking at the buildings downtown. 
Everything seems to be fine. The uh, smokestacks on the Zymogenetics building are still there. Dave Ross is such a professional. I would have been screaming. <laughs> I, I, I would have been crying under my desk. Can you hear me? <laughs> you know, given my last will and testament. To, uh, what you, know what's, you know what's crazy about that clip, too, is that uh, Dave Ross is only 12 years old. Isn't, when that, that, isn't that amazing? <laughs> isn't that amazing that he had that voice? He was born with it. His first word was mama. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, that's it's, today's the anniversary of it. Happened yeah. 22 years ago. Uh, if you were here, you'll on. never forget. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the, th- the other thing we want to talk about this morning, front page news, Tacoma Pharmacy is paying $80,000 to settle uh, alleged violations for vi- uh, violating the CSA, the Controlled Substance Act. So basically what ha- actually, you know, Spike, have you got the details on this? You got yes. the fine details? Well, on, on this particular pharmacy? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a Tacoma Pharmacy accused of violating parts of the CSA Controlled Substance Act. They reached a settlement with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Seattle. Now, that means they didn't force it to go to trial. Right. They didn't have to defend their actions in court because uh, the consequences would have been vastly more severe if they had forced the, the court system to play this out. Uh, and But I kind of feel, it per, from a personal standpoint, that we should have let this go all the way out. They were fined $80,000 yeah. for a failure to properly track narcotic pharmaceutical distribution, filling prescriptions of of dangerous narcotics. Yeah, oxycodone and hydrocodone, which is just Vicodin. And and, and I guarantee you, and I, I'm only speculating, but mm-hmm. $80,000 seems like a lot of money to you, me, and the postman, but what they probably made by distributing you know, dangerous narcs, narcotics – to these people was far beyond 80 grand and the fact that they're still allowed to do business today well, is seems to me like a bad bad idea. It could either be clerical error, right? Right. It could be maybe and I'm just throwing out hypotheticals. I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I'm just throwing out several hypothetical situations. Somebody could have had a problem inside of the pharmacy uh, you know, or in general, they could have had theft going on from other people who work there. You know, you never know. And, and, and you have to prove evil intent, to prove criminal intent. Right, right. Right. And that's and and the people who are doing this are much smarter than I. So it's easy for me to say you should have hauled their ass to court and made them pay the full <laughs> maximum. <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. Uh, but the, the 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 real news here is that it's a it's a public awareness. Hey, pharmacies across the state. You know, there's a law in place, the Controlled Substance Act. And basically, Jack, if, if I understand this correctly, maybe you can help me here. Yeah. The, when the CSA was put out, Controlled Substance Act, that's what stopped people from pharmacy shopping? No. So the CSA was in, initially started in 1970, and it was trying to crack down on, uh, I don't know, individual manufacturers of drugs, and they were trying to get the federal government to regulate it. In 2012, the Obama administration decided to update the CSA and they said we're going to keep track of every single pill that goes out to the American people okay and if you are found in violation of that that is where the fines start coming in okay. before 2012 it was like the wild wild west right you could <laughs> you could you could go to different pharmacists with different, different pharmacies right. okay. different okay. doctors and I lived that life so you would see one doctor and then you would have that doctor send the medication to a Walgreens and then you would see another doctor and they would send it to a target and then you would see another doctor yeah, and they no, would send it to exactly. it. you know it was and, it was and, amazing it was it was the be- best way to live ever <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you're better buddy I yeah, am really yeah, I can't too. tell you yeah. when I hear the horror stories of your past that you whip out with so cavalierly and i'm so i'm proud that you can do so Thank i really you. am 
Yeah, well, um, so, I'm so glad you're still with us, man. The the thing is, I remember the day that you had to stop doing that because it was the day before my birthday. It was October 4th, 2012. Wow. And I remember going to see my pharmacist and she said, "We're going to have to use all bring all your prescriptions here, so you're going to have to sign this release." Now, I was smart enough to know that if I did that, I was going to jail. So what I did is I said, "I'll just have my doctor call it in here from now on." And so, and so what I did then is I just went to one doctor. I stopped having three or four or five right. different doctors at the same time. Because, I mean, this was very smart from the Obama administration to try to crack down on this kind of doctor shopping. Unfortunately, though, what it led to was a lot of, of drug addicts who were doing that system of doctor shopping and going around to different right. pharmacies. It led them to then turn to the streets and go to heroin or oh, you know, stronger God. substances. So it kind of backfired for the Obama administration, particularly if you look at the rates of heroin use amongst the population after 2012, post-2012, it skyrockets because well, everybody was getting it through their yeah. doctor since you know 1998, 1999. Well, no, I can see where that – I had never even contemplated that, that effect – yeah, of, of of making it harder to just shop around for pharmaceutical drug addiction issues. Spike, I, I, I fool you not. There was a period of time in the late 2000s where you could go on a doctor's website, a telehealth style web, website, and you could go down a, a, a list and you could click, I want uh, 40 milligrams of oxycodone, I want two milligrams of Xanax, I want five milligrams of Adderall, and you could go and you could buy it. And, and there was no insurance. You paid in cash, and then the doctor would send you those or send out those prescription forms to your pharmacy. You didn't have to talk to anybody. You didn't have to see anybody. It was amazing. <laughs> for, for a young dra- drug addict like Jack Stein, it was amazing. A lot of people don't know this, that this is one of the things that fueled the opiate epidemic that we have in the United States was the complete lack of regulation for so many of these substances. You have no idea how many pill mills that I went to, how many doctors that you walk into and, and they would say, uh, bend over, and then you would bend over and they would go, your back hurts, here's your pills. I mean, it was, oh it, was, it was like the wild, wild west for about, I wanna say, five years of my drug addict career and then you were right in the sweet that, spot weren't you buddy you were right oh, there man. man it was like you're like, you're like drug- being a good jazz horn player in the 1920s <laughs> exactly. you know there's never a better time yeah exactly wow. you know it's it when you tell stories like that about the things that you've experienced in your life and yeah you really do give us an insight into a, a, a i mean a section of life part of the world i i had no idea I mean, I'm, I'm not that naive. I know people shopped around for pills. I had no idea how easy it was. It was unbelievably easy, yeah. You know, yeah, I especially, still see... Oh, we go ahead. I, I see to this day when we're trying to fill prescriptions for, for my wife, say, or for myself, when, yeah. when we're traveling, when, because my wife, we have family in the Southwest, we have family back East, and we'll go on... Now that our families are aging and, you know, it's the point of our lives where our parents and our aunts and uncles are, you know, in the, in the twilights of their life. And we'll go for two, three weeks at a time. My wife will go down for a month at a time. Yeah. And we'll have to transfer her prescriptions down to local pharmacies. She has maintenance prescriptions. And, and the, the, the hoops we have to jump through yes. to make sure yeah. that we're not doing what you used to do on a casual basis, what everybody was able to do because of the lax regulations on the pharmaceutical industry. It's, it really is nice to have your experiences and your willingness to share them. You're like an undercover reporter. Yeah, for some of the it, darkest yeah. stories we bring across the news desk. Well, and the reason I talk so some people are like, "Oh, Jack's talking about drugs again." The reason that I the reason that I talk about it so often is because it's very easy, I think, for us to create a character 
or a fiction as to what drug addiction looks like yeah. and how it and how it happens. And I think it's important to give people a snapshot of how easy it is for many people or how how it was very easy for people to become addicted to very very heavy substances. You know, and, um, and when we create that caricature of the drug addict and, yes, and yeah. we make them more evil and more unworthy of our care and our support. Yeah. It makes like, it easier to dismiss the policies we need to put in place to fix these problems that will make everybody city the city we all pine for, the Seattle we all love and lost. I'll tell you I'll tell you a quick story, Spike. One time I was at a doctor's on duty. I was coincidentally not doctor shopping. I, I had strep throat really. I bad remember the I, day like it was yesterday. <laughs> it was the one time in my life I wasn't doctor shopping. No, right. Sorry, good. So I'm at a doctor's on duty and this woman comes in, a very well dressed woman, and she's dressed like a like an attorney, basically. She's dressed in a, a basically a suit. And she comes in and she's just gotten out of the, the local airport and she says, My baggage has been lost. She goes right up to the counter. She says, My baggage has been lost. I need a refill on my fentanyl and my Adderall prescription. Totally now not did not look like an addict, did right. not sound like an addict, did not present in any way, shape, or form like an addict. Uh, she was seen immediately. <laughs> she was went to the back, and they gave her her uh, fentanyl and her Adderall prescription. She walked right out the door. And so I think that it's important for people to realize that although we might look at the man or the woman on the street and think, oh, what a derelict drug addict. No offense to that woman who was, uh, you know, in her business suit, but that woman was like, that woman was doctor shopping. Like I knew, sharp you know? dressed, <laughs> derelict drug addicts. What that was. Right. So yeah. I mean, it's like they come in all shapes and forms and yeah. sizes, and Amen. I think it's un- unfair of us to just categorize one one group of people who look like me as being the only kind of people who can be severe drug addicts who are willing to lie to somebody to get more substance. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And and to this point of our bringing the story up, this this pharmacy in Tacoma yeah. was playing fast and loose with the rules. And we've, yeah. we, we've evolved to a society that protects people from themselves. And some people may call that the nanny state, yada, yada. There's a point in your life where there should be guardrails up. Because not everybody should lose it over the edge of a cliff, metaphorically, when they have when they make a bad decision or get into a spiral of bad decisions. You know, there needs yeah. to be guardrails yeah. up, like the Controlled Substance Act, which doesn't let a pharmacy like the one in Tacoma just willy-nilly hand out very dangerous drugs well, without keeping the proper recording. Very quickly, uh, in you know due diligence to this particular pharmacy, they did not admit any liability nope, in the matter. No, nope, not and one. So, and so, you know, we're not making any accusations, not making any kind of uh, you know disparaging remarks against that fine organization. It's just the way that the cookie crumbles, right? Well, when, when you agree to pay an eighty thousand dollar fine, it wasn't all sunshine and roses. Yeah, there you go. So there you go. All right. Well, when we get back, speaking of sunshines and roses, Spike O'Neill fell asleep for the entirety of. Uh, Bruce Springsteen concert last night. That's right, people. (laughs) Was not awake for a single moment of it. Find out why when we get back right after this. So last night, Spike O'Neill, without me, Jack Stein, goes to see. I wasn't invited. Apparently, someone called your brother and your daughter's boyfriend. I don't know who those people are, but apparently... <laughs> They're more important than I am. Well, first so, off, they are. So, okay. well, way to f- fine-tune drill into that one, my friend. Sure. No. Um, so, I mean, it's it's a convoluted story of how I got tickets. Long story short, when these tickets went on sale, the whole dynamic pricing fiasco was hitting us all. And uh, Taylor Swift and whomever else uh, and Springsteen 
had this issue where their fans, their long-term diehard fans, yeah. were basically priced out of seeing their heroes. Yeah, it was like the, f- tickets 500 went, bucks. Yeah, well, 500 bucks or 1000 up to $5,000. Wow. The dynamic pricing structure of Ticketmaster is an entire another topic we can get into. It's actually being dealt with at the congressional level. Ticketmaster and you know Live Nation are having to testify before Congress. I was telling my friend Bob Rivers that luckily some congressmen couldn't get tickets to take their granddaughters to Taylor Swift, <laughs> so we'll finally get some action on Ticketmaster's you know stranglehold on the industry. But anyway, so I so I wasn't going to go to Springsteen, it was be, and this was going to be the first <laughs> tour I've missed since 1978's Darkness on the Edge of Town tour, the first time I saw Bruce. I've literally yep. seen every tour he's done as a solo artist with uh, E Street Band and with the other band that he put together in the 90s or the late 80s to do those uh, you know, Lucky Town um, Human Touch albums. Anyway, wasn't going to go. A dear friend of the family gifted me three tickets, had bought three tickets through the dynamic pricing structure, and then found three better seats when things got back to normal and the market took over the value of the tickets. So okay. I, at, the, at the 11th hour, I get a gift of three tickets, and I'm going to take my brother. We've been to more shows together than any shows I've ever seen in my life. My brother and I are 13 months apart. We're almost Irish twins, and we literally okay. did everything together our entire lives. And I had a third ticket, and my, uh, my daughter's new boyfriend, who I've just gotten to know in the last year, um, is like a diehard Springsteen fan. What's his name? His name is John. Great kid, like great kid. <laughs> anyway, so that's how I ended up at the show last night. And they and they may have been the worst seats I've ever I've had since I was a teenager. Okay. Since I you know could control my own income and dictate what I you know just what I steered toward entertainment my dollars blah 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 blah. And I mentioned to you guys yesterday that you know when we had Charles Cross on. Thanks so much to Charles Cross for coming on yesterday, giving his input into the ticket fiasco with Springsteen and. And his career in general and why the Northwest has always been a real sweet spot for Springsteen and Springsteen fans. And yesterday, I'm losing track here because I'm, I'm right back in my seat last night. Dude, it was incredible. Um, wow. I, went, I went to the show and not knowing what to expect because Bruce is 73. And I've, he hasn't toured in six years. He did his one-man show on Broadway. He had two runs on Broadway. And that's, that's straining to do a one-man show, but it's not the live carnival of excitement that is a live Springsteen show. Yeah. And also, I, th- I think I mentioned this to you yesterday, but he's got like the Paul McCartney vibe where the older he gets, it's the more fit and energetic he becomes that I've noticed. Like if you see Paul McCartney, he's 80 years old. He's rocking out. You know what I mean? It's not like he's yeah. like when I saw George Clinton in Parliament Funkadelic, he couldn't stand up. He right. was sitting in a chair the entire time. Last time I so, saw B.B. King, he couldn't leave it. He was helped to a stool, sat yeah. there all night and then was helped off the stage. I yeah. hear you. So I've seen Bruce do these. His last album was an album of, of covers. Old classic 60s R&B and 70s R&B covers called uh, Only the Strong Survive. And when I saw him do these, uh, feature these songs on, whether it was uh, Colbert or Jimmy Fallon, it, Bruce sounded, you know, a little on the rough side. Sounded wow. a little on the aged side. So I really didn't know what to expect from an E Street show of a 73-year-old. And I was saying, this is my 55th Bruce show. And, I, and I'm not just being hyperbolic, man. It, it, it may have been the very best concert I've ever seen from him, not just him. I mean, it's the best concert I've ever seen in my life last night. And maybe I'm just still a little post Bruce high, and it's a very likely possibility. Not a single <laughs> drug or alcohol went into my system last night. Yeah, you know, I don't have to do that anymore to enjoy my life. So, but you know, the not just his energy level and his voice, which was stellar last night. His playing last night 
was stellar. Bruce has got a huge band. He's got, you know, he's the third guitar player in his band. When he was a young performer, his first few albums, he was the only guitar player in the band before the Born to Run album. The first two records, Mm -hmm. it was just him. And he played a lot of music that I had never seen him play live before in 45 years of seeing him. He played music from the, from that second album especially that is just blistering guitar. I mean, he's not, he's not Ingve Malmsteen. He's not one of the great, he's not Jeff Beck, God rest sure. his soul. Yeah. But, you know, Bruce was playing the, the, the leads he played on those records spot on and with just energy and verve. And it was phenomenal to see. Was he using the uh, the no caster that priceless? Uh, oh yeah, the beat up piece of wood with the pickups in it. Yeah, that same that same telly. <laughs> and it was funny. He was seven songs in before he stopped to take a breath and say hello to the crowd. Wow! Uh, and wow. and it, it was the set list that he put together was a, a mishmash of older stuff and then some of the newer things he's done, like his Letter to You record and his a song Ghost that he's done. He played a nice mix of of most all of his albums were represented last night. But he just dug deep into this this well of, of of deep tracks, as Matt very accurately referred to them. You know, it's like Kitty's Back, Candy's Room. You know, these songs. I, I don't ne- know any of these songs. I, yeah, well, yeah, unless <laughs> unless you're a Bruceophile like I am, you yeah. wouldn't know. And I and I totally get it. But he played like you know, um, because the night which he wrote and Patty Smith made a huge hit. Right. And I've seen him do that before, but not for the last thirty five, forty years. He played songs. He played, you know. I mean, you you, you wouldn't it wouldn't do you any justice to say, you, can you believe he played She's the One? He played Wrecking Ball. He played Wrecking. You know, <laughs> but I don't know. Any I know, right? Stuff. And and yeah. the, the band itself between Nils Lofgren, who's now the lead guitar player, Little Steve and his sidekick, his concierge, Stephen Van Zant. You know, those guys were all there. Um, his wife wasn't on tour with him for the first time. I think in twenty some years. His wife Patty plays rhythm guitar and sings backup. What about um, Max Weinberg on the drums? Mighty Max was great. He was there, but he had also a full-time percussionist. Oh, and they wow. did a back-and-forth okay. drum solo thing between a, 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 a percussionist half Max's age and forcing Max to step up and meet this kid you know, at the middle. It was, it was fantastic. Was he sweaty? Was he getting he was the drenched boss in sweat? Drenched yeah. in sweat. He he looked younger. He, he played younger. He sounded younger. He had three background singers and four horns. And everybody, I mean, literally, they, they added parts to songs from, from records that didn't used to have horns in them or, or you know, and, and, and they sounded great. They found ways to make sure that everybody built into these songs and made these songs maybe the best live versions I've ever heard of any of these songs. So when I say maybe the, of my 55 Bruce shows, 45 years after my first, it easily could be the very best Bruce show I've ever seen in my life. Did you, did you sit or did you stand? Stood the whole night. Wow. You know, really? and it's funny because the yeah. people, I looked at the two ladies behind me who were kind of looking around me and I'm like, okay. So I looked at a couple, couple rows behind me. And we, and I say we had bad seats. We had nosebleed seats behind the stage, which is fine. I love to watch, I love to watch the band from behind because you watch Bruce work the crowd yeah. and watch the crowd react to the band. So, I mean, I was a couple rows from a nice pillar. So I got to, I climbed out of my seat and went over and stood in front, <laughs> stood in front of this pillar. Yeah. And so I could stand up all night and this poor lady that was sitting behind me didn't miss the whole show because of my big wide backside. <laughs> but yeah, I, I stood for the, it was all, a nearly three hours, about a three hour show start to finish. You know, he, he leaves the stage after his, um, his last song of the night before the encores. And everybody said, well, how many encores are you going to get? What do you think? Two, go, two, three. I'm like, nah, I'm like five. They're like, no way. I'm like, yeah, I'm telling you five. They played seven encores. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and wow. And half the Born to Run album was played during the encores. And it was, it was a fantastic night. 
of that man embracing his craft, appreciating his audience. You know, and and I know most of the people pay, there paid way more than they wanted to for their seats. I would I would venture to guess that nobody regretted a penny they paid to see that show last night. No matter if if you paid five grand to sit in the front row, you got your money's worth last night. I got to look into this Springsteen guy. Apparently, he's got some good music I need to check out. So. Uh, you know, it's it, the, for me the best stuff is never has never seen the light of day on the radio. The old jazzy, funky yeah. stuff from his first couple records. And he played so much of that last night. I, Jack, I, I am on cloud nine. I'm happy for you, buddy. I, Thank I'm, you. I'm, I'm so happy for you. Uh, we'll take a really quick break when we get back. Speaking of clouds, by the way, pretty bad weather. Pretty <laughs> <That's>, bad. <laughs> that, my friends, is a major market segue. Right that's there. Why, that's why I make the big bucks. All right, we'll take a really quick break. We'll be right back right after this. Welcome back to Cairo Middays. Spike, I've, I've been troubled for many, many years, nigh on decades, about why people default to talking about the weather. Now, there's a great rundown <laughs> over at My Northwest talking about the weather that's going to occur over the next several days, how it's going to some snow in the mountains and other right. people is going to be more slushy snow and i understand that this is important to people i understand that infrastructure depends on this kind of stuff i understand that this affects lives uh, uh, all, all kinds of lives one of the things i will never understand is why is it that when you ask somebody how they are they'll say i'm good it's raining or like i'm bad it's hot <laughs> have you ever noticed that it's a weird cultural phenomenon that we have and i i don't understand it it's it's a weird way of identifying yes we, we all know that it is cold outside i understand that it is blustery and windy and, and unpleasant why do we all have to like confirm it to each other hey, uh, hey I, spike it sure is cold out today right spike oh yeah, I mean, wow it's really cold what are we gonna do about it it's hold cold. on Jack, I, I gotta post a picture to my social media about the snow <laughs> in my front yard because <laughs> only seven hundred thousand others have done it so far and i've got to hit that quota <laughs> you know i think what it is is that it's it touches everyone literally i mean no matter people arrange their whole lives they move they retire based on weather whether they're yeah. tired of being hot, they're tired of being cold, they're tired of being wet, they're tired of being dry. They, they will adjust their lives to get the weather that makes them happy because it is literally every single day we interact. And like you said, I mean, it's funny in Seattle to try to forecast or talk about weather news in Seattle is so bizarre because half the city was impacted today, half the city didn't get a drop. Right, Half yeah. the city needs to know what roads are, are, are you know, compromised, what schools, what closings, whatever's. Half the city's like this has, I, what are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, and it, and it's, it's regional, it's, it's elevate, you know, based, elevation based. And there are folks who are trying to go do business in Eastern Washington or visit family or recreate in Eastern Washington. And so right, when we have yeah. snow in the city, a little slush in the city doesn't hurt nobody, but another foot in the passes, if you're going to get that much, that impacts the ability to, to do what you do, to earn your living, to do anything. So we have such a mixed bag of the need and interest in weather forecasting in this town. It's always a hard thing. To, it's a hard needle to thread. I, I personally, I, I love, I love big weather. I love yeah. snowstorms. I love lightning. I love thunder and lightning. I love big wind. I hate losing power, but I love <laughs> I, I love stories like that 
Because it really does. Every, it's, you're right. First thing people say, how you guys doing? Oh, I lost power for an hour last night, man. Branches everywhere. Couldn't get out of my driveway. Yeah, I guess okay. in some way it's like a, it's like a bonding. Yeah. It's a, like a culturally yeah. bonding. We all understand that we're all miserable, especially John Curley at this point in time. He's got to be under eight <laughs> feet of snow. Hey, you, John? you know what? You can't have the beauty of eastern Washington right. without owning a snowblower. Cost of doing business, Mr. Curley. Well, John, I think he wanted to get so far away from Seattle. I think he's in Barrow, Alaska at this point in time, right? I mean, he's not even – he's – right, Matt Butler? Uh, another seven, nights, seven months of winter. Seven months of night. Let's go. Arrgh. I mean, he was trying to get as far away as he possibly could from King County. So but it, I, I understand it. It bonds people, and it's important to people. I just I, – I guess maybe it's the the part of me that wants to save as many seconds of my life that I have that it, when someone comes up to me and they go, it's snowing, I go, I wish I had that two seconds back. <laughs> I wish – you're you know, lucky all they're giving you. Are you losing is half a minute? Well, it's like you know, I, I go to my yoga class in the morning and be like, "Man, it's cold outside." I'm like, "What? Wow!" And I hate to be cruel to people, but it just seems like so unnecessary. And wait, Matt, Matt Butler, Psycho Matt, am I being too rigid here, or is this literally a waste of people's lives? No, it literally is a waste of people's lives. And yes. it's it's like that yes. thing every year where it's like delays at the airport. Yes. Yes. Breaking news. I'm like, this happens every year. Every year. Yeah. Right. So, and that's my point is like, it's almost like when people say like, you mean the airport's backed up three days before Christmas? What is this? You who know what knew? I mean? like, who would have ever thought? And it's like, <laughs> you mean you can't travel on Thanksgiving? It's like, these are such obvious things that I wish that we could all just agree to put it down and move on with our lives.